Hello everyone, it's Panicky here, and this week we have something a little bit different. It's an interview with Northeast based beekeeper, artist, and general multi-hyphenate renaissance person, Barbara Keating. We spoke to her about a year ago. We'll have some updates at the end of the episode as to what she's been getting up to since then. But this is just a great and wide-ranging conversation that I'm really proud to present to you, so I sincerely hope that you'll enjoy it. So, Barbara, thanks so much for joining us. I was just hoping that you could maybe introduce yourself and maybe just give us some background about your work. Yeah, sure. Hi. Pleased to be here and thanks for inviting me to talk to you. So, my name's Barbara Keating and I'm a visual artist and normally when people hear that they ask me am I doing painting or sculpture and I have to say neither because I normally use video and phones and all sorts of tech things uh, just whatever comes to hand and there's always a bit of making so I started off my first degree was in textile design and I've never lost that love of making things so usually with any project there's a making part of it where I have to build things because it helps my thought process you know I can't just design something on paper and then make it so there's quite a long process in making work. So I started doing video stuff in about 1992 when it was reel to reel. And so it was um, pneumatic and VHS and all that kind of thing. And there was no such thing as a computer available to the likes of us. Hmm. And then that all happened very quickly. So most of my work is now it's, uh, digital media stuff. Brilliant. That's who I am. Um, but you're also a beekeeper, of course. Well, the, all the early work that I did, it was with dance and theatre people. It was in doing courses in TV studios and it was all dark spaces, dark edit suites. And after a few years of that, I began to realise that my body was probably a bit lacking in vitamin D. <laughs> <laughs> summer and winter, I was in these dark rooms. <laughs> and so I decided that I needed to do something to get me outside. And I'd been fascinated with bees for a long time. And it took me about five years to get round to actually joining a bee club. And uh, the first time the hive was opened in front of me, the, the whole thing, the, the sound, the smell, just the activity of the bees and the, what they were doing, I, you know, I was hooked straight away. So uh, I started doing beekeeping to get me away from the computer. And of course, now my work is focused around doing films involving bees so I'm kind of mm. back at square one in a sense that I'm not away from the computer but technology has moved on now and you know you don't have to be in a dark room so I'm actually in my <laughs> little you can take your computer shed. outside now <laughs> yeah well I've got my shed which has got windows and I can close it off if I need it dark but I'm you know I've got a shed at the bottom of the garden so it you know technology has uh, advanced enough for me to be able to <laughs> see the light of day while I'm working <laughs> Can I just jump in and ask something there? Mm. You just said when you first got into beekeeping that the smell hit you, amongst other things. Mm. What, what does it smell like? Does it smell like honey? <laughs> not not really, a little bit. Um, it smells of propolis, which is a, it's a resin that's collected by the bees from trees. Oh. And it has antibacterial properties. Mm. And uh, so they collect it and they will 
use it the baby bees once they're born vacate their cell once they've hatched and they'll clean and polish that cell and they use propolis to polish it so the queen can get, lay the next egg so they'll use it for that but they'll also use it to stop up holes you know to to stop drafts and mm. if bees are feral bees living in a tree for instance if the entrance hole is a bit too big for them to defend in winter, they'll use propolis to close over that hole, sometimes so only one or two bees can pass. That's amazing. Um, so they, they're, they're repairing they things. things. <laughs> yeah, and then <laughs> anything, <stuff> together. <laughs> if something has died inside the hive, like a mouse, so sometimes if the bees are inactive and in their cluster over winter, a mouse will come in and think it's quite nice. You know, there's a supply of food there and it's cosy. The bees keep it warm, you know. Uh, but if the bees find it and uh, either they kill it or it, oh. it, it dies, they will then propolize it so that they'll kind of cover it so the bacteria doesn't affect the hive. Wow. So that's they, so yeah, smart. That's, it's propolis that's is really a intelligent. Thing. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're so smart. Um, so it smells of propolis and it smells of wax. And then the nectar, really, the, the honey isn't generally open when it's in the hive. When they bring nectar back... Uh, from the fields they pass it to a, a house bee uh, they'll pass it from bee to bee and they'll mix enzymes with it and then they'll, they'll store it some of it's for immediate use so they don't evaporate the liquid off it as much and then when they're going to store it over winter they evaporate all the water off to a certain degree and then they cap it so when you open the hive you can smell and there's just a lovely bee smell that i can't quite mm. describe but it's very addictive makes you feel great but speaking really of smells actually i remember you telling me about this project that you worked on around bees and food yes uh, so would you mind just telling us a little bit about that I, i'm not sure if ashley knows about this actually so just uh... <laughs> this is turning into something of an iterative project so it was before i'd got my own bees and i'd filmed somebody else's bees because i'd been going to this bee club and i'd been helping lots of other beekeepers and i went on a course and i did loads before i actually got my own bees and there was a convention that used to happen in the region uh, annually for beekeepers and i was thinking i'd heard about the lack of forage for bees and I was trying to get people interested in the idea that the things that we eat are also often the things that bees eat so you know, like beans and peas and all, all sorts of other plants are edible by us and bees pollinate them and bees also eat the pollen from that so uh, I was trying to get foodie people in contact with bee people and of course the convention didn't happen at the same time as this festival which is where I'd hoped they would coincide the festival was called the eat festival and it was a series of all sorts of food events some of them quite wild and wacky people uh, I think were put up in a crane outside the sage and had their oh, dinner I've up seen, there all, all sorts of, yes yeah wonderful things and fantastic food. as long as you're not scared of heights <laughs> as long as you're not scared of heights yeah <laughs> and I got in touch with them and the director of that this uh, Simon Preston said why didn't I just join in the eat festival so the minimum I could do was to host a home restaurant modeled on the Cuban restaurants that they had at the time when only state canteens were allowed to run as restaurants and people used to you know be a bit rebellious and have these paladaras which is a home restaurant and a kind of secret underground restaurant and the that minimum I really could cool. do take part, was, yeah I mean imagine <laughs> but uh, the minimum you could do is to run it like a restaurant was to have eight people over two nights and because I'm not a chef although I'm really interested in food and I love cooking that's what I agreed to do so I filmed honeybees feeding each other they pass food to each other not just to feed each other that's part of it but also to pass for storage for processing and they also pass pheromones to each other so it's also a means of spreading this communal message around the hive 
as to the state of the colony that's living there. Wow. Um, so I filmed that. I filmed them bringing pollen back, processing pollen, fanning to evaporate the water off, all, all sorts of things like that. And then I edited just a short video and I had some audio with it from the bees as well. And I set it up as a, an installation in my home and I designed a menu which was based on what the bees like to eat. And it was advertised as just a honeybee's paladar. And people buy these tickets for these events and they're quite adventurous because you don't really know <laughs> what you're going to find when you get there. So people came along expecting to be just honey tasting and people had generously given me quite a few different kinds of honey to taste. So people walked into this room and it was full of you know bits of beehive and wax and propolis and all these aromas of the hive around them and the sound of the bees. And I used to have a big table and I had a white tablecloth on it and the bees were projected down onto this tablecloth. And then people gradually began to notice more about what was happening on the table and what the bees were doing. And then I explained each dish. So, for instance, there was a little cocktail to start with that was made with sloe gin. And they didn't understand the connection with bees. And, of course, sloes come from the blackthorn tree, which is probably flowering around about now. Uh, so it's an early source of food for bees. So each dish was designed like that. So people would discuss the connection with bees. And um, when the diners sat down at the table, of course, the projection was down on them as well. So they were completely covered in bees and gradually began to notice more detail about what the bees were doing and to ask questions about it. So I'm really interested in this um, involvement of the whole senses to create memories and to embed mm. ideas with people and make them curious about it in a conversational way and that sensory way. It sounds like a fully immersive experience. That sounds yeah, really, people really enjoyed really it. Yeah, yeah, and people. Well, I'm I'm doing another iteration of it now. <gasps> really? Um, oh, that's really yeah. exciting. I'm just about to start filming. Oh, great! <laughs> yeah, we should have started filming tomorrow, but it's going to be put out next week. Oh, is it going to be open to the public as the previous one was? Uh, yes. Co Covid <laughs> well, dependent, COVID, I assume. Covid, Covid, Covid. Yes. Uh, well, had to come up. <laughs> from that one, then sometime, I think it was about three years ago, I was commissioned by Tynaway Museum Service to do a project about bees. And it was commissioned in November to be presented at a one-day event at the Hancock Museum. That's the Newcastle's Natural History Museum. They commissioned it, and of course you can't open the beehive in, in the winter because uh, the bees, you know, they, they cluster when it's for mm. warmth together when it's cold so I couldn't think what to do and th this is the way I do my work and move from project to project I just couldn't think how to do it and I decided oh what about infrared and filming the bees using that and I've tried various small handheld cameras and it wasn't quite what I wanted and uh, then being the cheeky artist that I am and used to not having budgets I just kept phoning round and badgering people until eventually I got through to somebody at marketing at Fleur in the Netherlands and they make these big top-end cameras, and they agreed to loan it to me for a weekend. And because there's no, you know, there's no budget to speak of, and there was no time to prepare or anything, so I just did a self-taught crash course with a, with a bit of help from the marketing guy at Fleur in how to use the thermal camera. And I lay underneath the hive and messed about with it for the weekend, and it was end of January, beginning of February. I think. <laughs> so it's minus Chilly. four. Minus four. <laughs> but it was so fascinating, and I managed to get some nice footage of the bees and then 
and this was shown in a, an installation. The project manager was joking when I was trying to draw it, saying the drawing's not my forte, in spite of all those years at art school. <laughs> and, and he said, are you trying to make a TARDIS controller? That's <laughs> <laughs> what he meant. I had a, a hexagonal tube made out of beautiful golden coloured plastic and I concealed a screen inside it. Uh, which was made out of um, it's actually a 90 pence B&Q shower curtain that was in a bargain bin, <laughs> just plain white. So I concealed that inside it with the help of lovely guys at Northern Stage. Chris Durant was helping me. And this tube was suspended above a hexagonal white table, which was padded and it was covered in white cloth. And that read as a kind of cell for a baby bee, because what the bees do is they create these... They're actually circular cells, but when they're pushed together, they become hexagons. And before the queen lays her egg in the cell, they'll put a little bit of like milk, that milky substance, mm. for the baby bee to eat on, you know, when it, when it hatches from its cell. So I, I was thinking of that, and I made some wax bowls and stuff. And then I, over that was the, uh, the projector, back projected down inside this golden tube, and it was suspended a couple of feet above the table. So when you came into the room, there was just this sort of golden glowing thing in the centre and this white thing that could be a dining table or an altar or something. It was quite a... Um, people, people behaved quite reverentially and respectfully they came in. It was quite magical, I think, as well, you know, the opinions from people. Came towards the table and then they looked up into the tube and they saw these um, infrared images of bees. And quite a lot of people asked if there were actually bees in the tube. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't have them in there. So I did that, but the, that was just a one-day thing. And I involved a lot of community groups, so beekeeping clubs, people who grow food which bees eat, so community orchards, community farms, and then people involved in wildlife recording, natural history society people. And did another iteration of that, but without the installation, during Dippy on Tour, where we got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families round. We had Kane and Heather from Wild Intrigue came. They run lots of fun events that get people involved in wildlife, batting pizza nights and kitty wakes and donuts, those kind of things. So they all came along and people and they, they all had stalls. Julia Piggott from Brigsteer Bee Reserve. So that was that event. And then this latest iteration of it, Fleur, who make the fancy dancy camera, have agreed to loan me the camera once a month over the course of a year. So instead of just doing a bit of the infrared filming, I'm going to do a 24-hour cycle. And it's a view from underneath the hive, looking up between the frames and monitoring the bee activity with this thermal imaging camera. So it won't just be the winter cluster as I've done to date. So that'll be a lot more exciting when the bees notice that we're filming them. Yeah, but that'll be fascinating to kind of see mm. how their activity changes through the year and everything. That's, that's so great. Yeah, and at the same time as that is going on, there's a project which I've been involved in. They've been running it for a few years now, and it's run by Drs. Matt Pound and Rinka Vinknu from Northumbria University. And uh, I think you'll like the title of the project because it's called City Slickers and Country Yokels. <laughs> so they're studying diet between urban and rural bees. So they've got sites all over the place and beekeepers have been handing in samples of bee bread. Bee bread is um, the pollen that's been processed and packed by the bees to store inside the hive as opposed to raw pollen on the bees' legs. So on last Monday, Matt Pound came down where I'm filming the bees is in town on the terrace of the old co-op, which is now a Premier Inn. So I've got one colony there and we've got a pollen trap which sits on the front of the hive. So for one hour per week, Matt's going to go there and set this pollen trap up and that'll actually knock the 
pollen that the bees are bringing in off their legs and into a filter, which he'll take back to the lab and analyse. And he's also got an air pollen filter. So it's just a, it's actually made from a bit of plumbing pipe and a comb that he nicked from his wife, who's a school teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I love the kind of DIY approach to a lot yeah. of this yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of, I mean, you should see the setup for the actual filming because the hive has to be raised up a bit so we can get under it without too much discomfort. So I've got an old formica table that somebody gave me. It's got a hole cut in the middle. It's very ramshackle. It'll be held together with gaffer tape and cable ties, I guarantee you. <laughs> because there's so few budgets. So these pollens are going to be the basis for the new menu. So instead of just having generic foods that bees eat, it's actually going to be specific to that hive. Oh, that's, and, yeah. Uh, so I'm collaborating with Blackfriars restaurant. But of course, with COVID, you know, they've had to change how they work and they've been doing takeaway stuff. Mm. Well, now they're actually serving stuff out of doors. So we're not sure how the food event's going to go this year. We'll do some experiments with it and we'll do some testing. But of course, the, you know, the chefs, especially in the early days of lockdown, because they had to be distanced, they were all having to work mm-hmm. much longer hours to serve the same number of people. So they didn't kind of have room for experimenting. But uh, that, that's what we're going to be doing. So it's not about honey. It's not about cooking with honey mm. it's about what the bees are eating and then designing the menu around that and when we did it before um, I'd also got some pollen samples from a hive that I'd been working on and Matt Pound had done some images under the microscope just a you know not, not really high quality pollen images but decent enough and I process them because my, in my other world I'm a video editor and colour grader and I train people in all that stuff on um, the Apple software and the Blackmagic design software. So I made these pollens into motion graphics. Uh, so these pollens are kind of floating around in the air. So it's just a rough sketch. Uh, I, I think so I'm, I'm going to do Is it that now. what you had on Vimeo? with the That's bees right, yes. Oh, I saw yeah. that. They're beautiful. I was going to ask if they, oh. was that real pollen or was mm. it? <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, they, the, the colours are exaggerated because they stain the pollens um, to view them under the microscope. But there are different ways of processing the pollen. Um, and I'm just learning about that. But now they've got a scanning electron microscope and I think they, you know, they have to wash. All the pollen grains come with wax coating on them. A bit right. like when you buy f- fruit or vegetables, sometimes mm. they've got a kind of slightly wax coating. So they have to mm. wash that off in order to identify the pollens. But of course, the lab processing is slow because it's a very small lab and you can't get in it. And the, right. the research students who are helping on this are having to work remotely at the moment. Yeah. So, you know, we, we just all said, let's just get started. And, you know, you can plan the project to the nth as, as we had when you knew what we were doing. And then COVID comes along. Yeah. We're, mm. we're I think we're all just kind of uh, grappling with that still, aren't we? Yes, yeah. yes. Well, I really hope that you'll keep us updated on that project mm. because I would definitely love to uh, see how it comes along. But I think that this I, might... I would love to come along if, it, yeah, if it's possible. possible. It sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, it, at the moment, there's a two, couple of ways that we, we might do it. I have two strands that I want to do. And part of me wants to do something like I did before, which is a, a very intimate experience. And Blackfriars do that kind of, you know, they do uh, tasting evenings and stuff like that because they're, you know, the old guild halls are, are there and I think it's the Leather Workers Guild which is by the restaurant and I've, I've been offered that space and that's you know the configuration of it the, the way it's set up is is kind of ideal for what I would like to do and that would be a lovely exclusive thing and you could do you know the surround sound and completely control the space but the other part of me just wants to go I want to be do a huge egalitarian picnic mm. <laughs> uh, mm. so I've also been talking to other people about doing something along those lines because uh, I'm also working with some people 
over in Gateshead as well. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I mean, in terms of COVID safety, an outdoor event might be a lot more kind of viable yeah. at this point. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And there's ways of doing the video stuff outside as yeah, well. Absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. Before we kind of segue, I'm wondering if, seeing as we're already kind of talking about the link between bees and food, mm. if I could just kind of quickly <laughs> ask you about, uh, because, of course, we've been talking about eating insects, Mm-hmm. and uh, some people do eat bees don't they yeah fill us so, in on that yeah i personally haven't but um <laughs> the male bee is called a drone and he takes a lot longer to develop than the worker bee and so he grows quite a bit bigger and they're also uh, because their main purpose they, they don't do any of the work in the hive apart from uh, that well their job is to be there for genetic diversity so they're fed they're a great investment for a colony and they're fed by the worker bees and they don't do any of the cleaning jobs or taking out the dead bodies or feeding the babies, any of that. And they just go to what's in beekeeping circles, you'll hear people talk about the DCA, which is a drone congregation area. So it's basically where all the, the boy bees go and hang out for the girls, <laughs> waiting for the girls to come by. <laughs> so the queen bee will leave her hive and she'll go to this drone congregation area. And the idea of that is that you get a lot of genetic diversity between, they can go for about three miles, maybe up to seven miles, I've heard. Uh, but they go a certain distance away from their own hive because that prevents inbreeding. Mm. And then because they do all that flying, they're quite muscular, so their thorax is quite big. So it's a bit meatier than eating a worker bee, I guess. And they apparently, I say I've not done it, but <laughs> from what I've been reading, the larval stage of the bee, it's a bit too jellyish for making into something that you could fry or eat, it would just melt. So what mm. people do is they, they kind of uncap the drone brood and they pull pull the drone pupae out. And beekeepers tend to do this. There's something we call integrated pest management because one of the biggest threats to honeybees is a thing called a varroa mite. And the founders of the varroa mite colony will slip into the honeybee cell after the queen has laid the egg and then just before the cell is capped over, it'll slide in there and it'll as soon as the baby bee that starts pupating in there, as soon as it's eaten all its liquid food that I mentioned before, there's room then in the cell for the varroa to start reproducing. And because the drone bees take longer to develop, the varroa mites prefer to be in those because they can get two brood cycles in a drone cell. And this this is going somewhere, I promise you. <laughs> it's very long-winded. But this, this means that um, if you've got a colony which has a lot of drone brood, sometimes it'll have a concentration of varroa mites in there. And beekeepers will sometimes uncap some of that drone brood, check to see if there's an infestation of varroa mites in the colony. It's a kind of indicator as to how much the colony is suffering. And they'll know to give another treatment, or sometimes they will sacrifice that drone brood. So they'll just cut it out and they'll feed it to chickens or whatever. Or, I guess, if you don't mind eating the odd varroa mite too, you might mm-hmm. process it and make, sort of, there's a guy on YouTube who's making it into some kind of fritters mm. <laughs> with other stuff. Can I just um, ask, do drone mm. bees, do they have stings? They don't, mm. no. Ah, I see, because I was wondering about that, whether that would be a, a worry when eating them. But... Well, p- piquant flavour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. No, because you, you only do them at the brood stage as well. Right, okay. Um, and then I've been on lots of forums in America where people are of the 
opinion that um, you get rid of all the drone brood because they just eat all the, the honey and the food in the hive. Mm. But of course, that's a huge loss of genetic diversity. Yeah. So I actually, you can get different sizes of comb cells and, and uh, you know, they, the bees make bigger ones by themselves for drones, but you can actually give them pre-printed wax strips with that size of comb on, you know, with those size of cells on, and they will draw that and they'll actually increase the number of drone brood. And I tend to do that partly so I can sacrifice a bit if they have got varroa mites, mm. but also partly because... Um, I think it's good, you know, for there to be quite a lot of drones around for the genetic diversity of everybody around me because you're never keeping bees in isolation. I think a lot of beekeepers just think of themselves and their bees. But actually, you know, keeping bees in amongst all the other pollinators, 24, 26 different species of bumblebee in mm. the UK alone, mm. hundreds of mason bees. And they're bees, solitary bees, aren't they? Yeah, so there's the social ones like bumblebees and then there's, there's all, all the others which are solitary bees, yeah. Mm. yeah. So we've always got to be aware as beekeepers that we mustn't be taking resources from them, we must encourage people to plant more, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I want to hand over to Ashley in a minute, but just briefly before I do that, you mentioned bee washing uh, in a conversation we had previously and I just yeah. really want to know what you mean by that, if you can just kind <laughs> of <laughs> explain what bee washing is and how it manifests, how you've come across it. Yeah, so for, I don't know, probably about eight years now, um, I've noticed it, that this idea has come up that we must save the bees, which mm. obviously I agree with you, I mm-hmm. need to save them, but which bees and how and by whom. So people got hold of this idea that the honeybee needed saving. At the time when all this started, there were huge, huge colony losses mainly in the United States. Uh, there have been huge colony losses in Europe in the past, so when varroa mites arrived. In England, it was when the Isle of Wight disease arrived and all native bees were thought to have been lost then. So all our native population of Apis mellifera, mellifera our, our dark honeybees, they thought they were all lost. Uh, and then this latest round of it was in America. But it was more probably to do with, um, you know, this colony collapse disorder it was a mixture of the way the bees are used there. They're not native to North America, but they're used in the fruit orchards and the almond orchards and the almond groves. And they're trucked in there. Thousands upon thousands of colonies are trucked to these places every year. They don't like to carry the honey on the trucks that are taking them. So the bees get fed on syrup. So it's a bit like, you know, you give your kids sweeties instead of of a proper dinner. (laughs) So the bees were having a restricted diet. They were being moved around from place to place. And there wasn't a variety of forage actually on the almond groves. And that's now changing where the almond growers are now starting to think about underplanting the almond trees with other things and having other bees there pollinating. So there's a bit more biodiversity. But honeybees, because once you've got the hive there, it kind of stays in the same place. With solitary bees, you can't really see inside and see what they're doing, can you? Mm. <laughs> I guess you could set up something with a glass side or I don't know. But with honeybees, you can actually open the hive and you can look at it and you can have all those lovely pleasures of smelling and seeing and hearing everything that goes on so, and there are also uh, the a lot of studies were done on them for that very, very reason they're a great study creature they stay put so i think they became this poster child for biodiversity mm. and then everybody made this leap thinking all oh, right we've got to save the bees we've got to save honeybees and all become beekeepers and that's having quite big consequences in London now because there are various diseases which can spread. Um, so number one would be lack of forage. So I know people who spent a lot of time in London 
just encouraging local councils to plant, doing guerrilla gardening, you know, getting gardening clubs on site, just getting everybody planting more forage because there was a serious lack of forage because the increase in the number of honeybee keepers. Mm. But there are a couple of notifiable diseases. We've got American fowl brood and European fowl brood. And there's been a big rise of that in London and uh, in other sort of urban areas in Yorkshire. There's some worry about that. Uh, so there quite a lot of inexperienced beekeepers can get into it and not maybe recognise the disease. It's not, not always easy to spot. So this bee washing thing, when uh, I've, you know, I've had so many people approach me, companies in particular, and they've got a green budget and they want to show their green credentials. So they ask a beekeeper to keep honeybees on their roof or their business park. Uh, and they don't realise, of course, you know, um, probably a, an acre or two would feed a colony for a year. You know, there's a lot, an awful lot of uh, awful lot of food they need. So they want to put the, the bees on the roof, but they don't actually realise how heavy a box of bees is. And if the beekeeper leaves the bees there and doesn't tend them, they are going to swarm at some point. So a swarm is when the old queen leaves the hive and sets up home somewhere else. <laughs> it's the it's reproduction at colony level. So be, you know, one queen will be reproducing at individual level. And then this whole colony grows around and it will have specific tasks and things. And then half of that is a bit like sourdough, isn't it? Something like that. Don't talk just about sourdough. (laughs) It's not gone well. (laughs) I thought I'd have to drop it in because it's COVID, isn't it? We've both got sad sourdough jars in our fridges. Mine's actually very vigorous. It's overly vigorous is the problem with mine. Mine is not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, somebody gave me one that had been frozen and she swore it worked and and I couldn't make it work. So my bees have been more successful. So that's good. Yeah, so this bee washing for me is when, when people, you know, want these green credentials, but they haven't realised how much a honeybee colony eats, mm. how you have to tend it every week during the summer. You have to have ex- an experienced beekeeper. You have to make a contract with the beekeeper. Um, there have to be disease inspections. It might need feeding. They all expect honey. They'll say, how many pounds of honey will we get from it? <laughs> yeah. Or sometimes none. You know, It has to be transactional. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So usually... I go and see them and talk to them and come away having left them with the idea that it's much better to do planting. Because mm, absolutely, yeah. I get called all the time to community projects and businesses where a hive has been left or a couple of hives have been left and they're an absolute mess and a varroa and disease risk for other bees mm. uh, if they're not managed in, in urban areas. Yeah, so that for me is bee washing, is thinking that you can get a hive of bees and that will be saving the bees because yeah. it, it's absolutely not, you know. Join a club, go on a course, get hands-on. It's wonderful to learn about honeybees. It's great, but you have to think twice about whether you can actually keep them or not. It's a big thing. Yeah, Yeah, big thing. Well, I know Ashley had some questions, and we're running a little bit low on time. So, Ashley, lightning (laughs) round. Right, yes, okay. Bam, bam, bam. (laughs) Right, so leading on from the bee decline you were just talking about. um, So pollinators are obviously a key part of the foundations of our ecosystem and from what i understand they're responsible for the pollination of about 75 percent of the crops we eat which is about 690 million pounds in the uk kind of economically and it's a huge amount (laughs) what what are the impacts of pollinator decline on people and also other animals oh gosh (laughs) there's there's a few photographs around which illustrate quite well what it would be like if we didn't have pollinators. There was an area of China, I think somewhere in northern China, where uh, there are fruit orchards, 
but they've mm. used so many chemicals that they had absolutely no bees there at all of any kind, no pollinators. And there are pictures of people up on ladders uh, with little paintbrushes pollinating <laughs> by hand. Oh my goodness. So <laughs> if you think of growing in the UK, what's the minimum wage now? You know, <laughs> 10 quid Ooh, odd. Good question. I think it's so, less than that. <laughs> yeah, if you were a honeybee. It just pop- went up actually. Oh, did it? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Whether anybody's actually paying it is debatable. <laughs> well, <isn't> yeah. <laughs> but if you imagine if you wanted your apples, you had to go down and paint with um. paintbrush, transfer <laughs> all the pollen, and do that with all your vegetables, you know, wow. every- everything like beans and peas and everything that needs pollinating. If people were having to stand there with a paintbrush that would be a lot more expensive wouldn't it very much yeah. just trying to put it in terms of you know that, that 690 million would quickly fly <laughs> it would yes yes it, it would so yes uh, and in other countries i mean uh, here we have um i think there may be some small pollination by bats and moths but but generally you know it's other in other countries um birds you know, do sort of inadvertent pollination and, and bats and things. But here it, it mostly is bees, butterflies and moths. So, yeah, it would be pretty disastrous. Pretty bad. <laughs> to to <laughs> say the least. <laughs> yeah. Next thing I just wanted to ask you about was sort of the connection between science and the natural world and art. I was reading about your aspiration of reconnecting people with their love and sense of wonder for the natural world through art. And I, I really relate to that and believe that the interplay between art and science is really crucial in addressing climate change. I think science needs art to be able to turn facts into feelings and reality into humanity. And it needs art to help us understand the intangible. So when you are connecting people to nature through art, what, what is your process? First of all, it's um, with bees in particular, because that's what I'm working on now, it was a falling mm. in love with the subject and the beginning to realisation of all the statistics surrounding it and then a lot of those were erroneous so that led me to do a lot of, of research of facts and and then get into the, the scientific research and relate to those scientists who are who are working on on new research mm. so that I was not just relying on my feelings about things or what what I'd read in the odd paper article because there's a lot of sensational stuff in media and I'd mm. begun to realize the sensational figures that they use in media were actually counterproductive so they never mm. say a colony of bees were stolen. They'll say 60,000 bees were stolen or, you know. <laughs> uh, so I research all, all the science and I talk to the scientists about it. Mm. And then I try and think how I can visualise that for people. And it's a kind of, it's a process of toing and froing between the two and thinking of how I experience things because I know what the experience is like of, of being in the hive. Mm. And I have certain feelings about it, certain reverence for it. A certain thrill, maybe a certain little fear. You know, you might get stung, <laughs> wouldn't you? <laughs> it's not yeah. that scary, but, but those kind of things. So I try and process that. But then there's also, of course, all the aesthetics of how people approach an artwork. So mm. it depends where they're seeing it. So when people came to my house, they were expecting a home restaurant, and that's a different ethos because they were expecting to eat, and you know, it was more like um, you know, I was a host and they were guests and, and that kind of relationship that conversation about the science grew out of the visuals and I could explain the science and the the figures behind it which didn't overwhelm the experience Mm. but if I'm showing something in a museum or a gallery when people are going to those sort of spaces they have a set of expectations you know they've seen art haven't they and you know if it's video they've seen films and telly and I think people Mm. are very visually literate these days because so much communication is visual 
you know, we see things on YouTube and Vimeo and goodness knows what all the time. You know, advertising is always moving image work. And so I'm, mm. that's always in the background of my mind that I don't want to, it interpreted like that because I think I'm translating those ideas into something more like a moving poem, I suppose. <laughs> it's not too fey mm. to say it like that's that. That's a beautiful idea. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And uh, I think it's working in traditions as well. Part of what you're working with, and this work that I'm doing at the moment, I'm thinking of the beehive is like a, a repository for memories. It's a memory of seasons mm. through all the pollens and uh, you know the layers of wax as they're created by different generations of bees. And that also relates to traditions in art, you know, traditions in science. And, and these traditions need to be revisited. They need to be reworked to remain alive. You know, we have to kind of examine them. And that, you know, there are a lot of, you know, I think we've mentioned before about the the myths involved in beekeeping and you know one of the phrases bees in a wood never do any good because bees live in trees in woods naturally <laughs> right <laughs> exactly so so there's a kind of there's a mixing of the myth and the folklore and examining that holding it up to scrutiny going to science getting the the latest possible science and realizing that's open-ended because always a huge is. Amount needs to be done. <laughs> yeah huge amount more needs to be done uh, and is being done particularly on honeybees at the moment so, you know, so that's my process is circulating around those ideas and you know, testing them out by making, presenting, you know, going back, refining and just inviting the viewers to a particular kind of experience. And that's mm. that's different each time. You know, it's different with each work. Yeah. That's wonderful. I, I think it's so crucial in, in communicating some of these really complex issues. So we are very much running out of time. So I have <laughs> yeah. one more question, which hopefully our listeners can take away with us. What can people do to support pollinators and protect biodiversity? What are the key things that people should be doing? Well, if possible, buy as much as you can locally and organic. I know that's not always within people's budgets. And that begs the question as to why people are not being paid enough, perhaps, to, mm -hmm. uh, to, to be able to buy food that's uh, not poisoning themselves in the land. <laughs> In your own garden, this guy called Phil Macari, who does forest schools and things of that nature, educating children about nature, came up with this phrase during the Trees and Bees conference. Um, he called it scruffination. <laughs> Let your garden be a bit scruffy. You know, you can just sit in it with a cup of tea or something stronger if it's in the evening and <laughs> the sun's out and you want to. And just watch all the insects. Don't cut everything back too soon. Don't mm. get rid of the dandelions. Don't go for the green lawn. You know, just plant a variety of things that you like to eat. So peas and beans and herbs, marjoram, rosemary, all that kind of thing. Get onto your local council, encourage them to do um, what we're doing now is no mow May. Mm. <laughs> well, I've been doing no mow April as well. but <laughs> Yeah, I've been doing no mow every month. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so cutting back on that and then just don't use things like Roundup because people are all signing these petitions against the reintroduction of neonicotinoids, which everybody wow. knows now is bad for bees. And then they're going and using Roundup to kill their weeds. That's the same thing. It's a systemic thing which is harming bees. So yeah, pressurise your local council. Plant as much as you can of things that you like to eat. Small flowers are great. Go on fruit tree grafting courses. Join a gardening club. Yeah. Put up some bee hotels and make your own. There's loads of sites like Bumblebee Conservation Trust, Bee Wars, which is B-W-A-R-S, Bug Life, BBKA, they'll tell you all about that. If I get into recording, there's something called iRecord, which is great for citizen science. And in the Northeast, we're very lucky to have something called the Northeast Bee Hunt, 
that's run by the Natural History Society people. Charlotte Rankin, who's on Twitter as Bumblebeing, <laughs> is, um, has, she ran some courses on identifying bees that you might find in your garden, both the bumblebees and the solitary bees, social and solitary bees. So you can just go and find out things, and there's loads of information online. You can get packs of posters that'll help you learn about all the other bees apart from honeybees. Yeah, just plant, plant loads of stuff for them. Excellent. That, that's all good practical advice. My, my partner's currently trying to um, create an alpine meadow in our front lawn. So we, ha- we haven't got very far yet, though. Yeah, <laughs> just do a little bit of something that's fun. Yeah. yeah. At, at the moment, it's a lawn with seeds on, but <laughs> we're trying. Rome wasn't built in a day. No, I'm very much trying to do wildlife gardening, but any kind of gardening is a big learning curve for me. So I'm just well, just don't just don't beat yourself up about it. Know that doing nothing is very good. Well. I must say I have noticed a lot of pollinators visiting my dandelions lately. So <laughs> Excellent. That's, yeah, that's definitely a good that's sign. That's absolutely spot on. Yeah. That's what you should be doing, just, just kick back. And I think people get so overwhelmed by all the statistics and I think they do make people panic and then people feel paralysed and they can't do enough mm. and they've got to suddenly buy all the books and watch all the gardening programmes and then you've got no energy to go in the garden. But actually just, <laughs> just doing what you're doing, doing a little bit at a time, you know, just bugging a few things in ponds are great oh i'm making a well ashley you've got a pond haven't you i've got a pond with some some tadpoles somewhere in it (laughs) (laughs) i'm making a micro pond at the moment so uh, i'm enjoying that yeah you can just make them out of buckets so long as you've got some bricks in the bottom so Mm. if if critters get in they can climb out Mm. yeah perfect for backyards and small spaces and grow things up the walls climbing plants yeah well, thank you so much, Barbara. I, I wish we had more time, but I think that's been amazing. That's covered so much ground. And I really hope that you will keep in touch and let us know how the project is getting on. And it's really yeah, yeah. That. Yeah. Well, if it does end up being open it, to the public, you know. Oh, it will be, yeah. Let us well, know, we'll on, be there. It's on, um, <laughs> it's on Facebook as Bees and Beeps. If you want to see Great. it on Facebook. Definitely. All right, well, well thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And, thank you, Barbara. Uh, uh, yeah, that that was great. And thanks so much to Barbara for being so generous with her time. She's been very busy since we last spoke, continuing to assist researchers at Northumbria University with their research on honeybees. She looks after bees at Usburn Farm, and they were featured on Springwatch. With Ben Jones, she's managed to secure funding for a citizen science project called Bees of Bencham. Link for that in the episode description. And she's back doing engagement on bees at the Hancock Museum. And her infrared film on bees is in production. So well done, Barbara. That's a lot more than I've managed to do in the last year. Well, thank you so much for tuning in once again. Of course, you can find us at The Most Gale on Instagram and Twitter, uh, themostgale at gmail.com. Ashley has the login for that. So if you've emailed us and you haven't received a response yet, uh, you know who to blame. And as always, please do rate, review, subscribe, and all that good stuff. Thanks again so much for listening. Bye.